Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. If you're listening to this as an Energy Talks podcast, this is episode 115, and I'm going to be talking to Kingsmill Bond, uh, one of my favorite interviewees. He's a senior principal in the Strategic Analysis and Engagement Group of the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is headquartered in Boulder, Colorado, but he's going to be speaking to us from the UK. So welcome to the interview, Kingsmill. Hi, Malcolm. Good to be back. Thank you. I'm really excited here. You have produced, you and your team, I guess, let's credit where credit's due. Uh, you have produced a theory on the peak plateau and demand for fossil fuels in the global energy system. And peak, peak right on decline even. And decline. My my mistake, sorry. Sorry, sorry. But I'm going to I'm going to admit some confirmation bias here right at the beginning because you use S curves, you use a lot of the theory that I first started using back in the mid '80s when I was working on my master's thesis, and have used ever ever since. Uh, and so I'm 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 biased. I I think that your theory best reflects what's going on in the global energy system and in national and sub-national energy systems. As I, as I, you know, I interview four or 500 people a year, read studies on and on, and, and your theory reflects that reality. So if, whether you're watching video or listening to this on the podcast, settle in because Kingsmill and I are going to have a very interesting conversation over the next 50 minutes to an hour. And Kingsmill, before we get into the the meat of your theory, how are things at Rocky Mountain Institute? Because you used to be a carbon tracker and you moved over about a year ago and you're doing some very interesting work there. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, well, first of all, it's really fun working for RMI. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I, I sort of should, should say that, but I, it is, uh, it's a very inspiring organization um, and, and it's fun to work with uh, people who are great believers in the energy transition and, and and the opportunities. And of course, the, the 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 other point about RMI, of course, is we have teams in lots of different locations and with people who focus on lots of different areas. So um, uh, China or India or Africa um, uh, and, and indeed teams across the global south. Um, and then I'm I'm also working with teams who are looking at electricity and transport um, and, and hydrogen. And, and for me, of course, it's kind of like... Um, it's particularly interesting because if we have the kind of framing and the global uh, narrative and actually you can work with people who are making change happen on the ground and see to what degree um this uh, these these ideas apply uh, to those sectors and that i think helps to um certain deepen and strengthen the 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 argument in many ways now are we going to see you in north america occasionally uh yeah no the um the, the plan is to um working with the finance team to do uh more, more work with the financial sector um, in, in the US in, in particular, and, and, and really to, to go out to the finance sector next year and go, look, um, 
this is, is really not an ESG issue. This is a technology shift and it's happening at speed and, and you need to, to be aware of that and to reflect that in the way you're allocating capital. And to agree, you know, some people are doing this, but quite a lot aren't and, and quite a lot, I would suggest, are kind of behind the curve, not recognizing the speed of change that's going on. Right. Uh, to use the uh, Everett's, uh, Rogers terms, uh, there have been innovators and early adopters, and, but we still are probably in the early majority stage and we need to get up that curve with so that the late majority and the laggards are advocating or allocating capital as well to the to the new energy technology. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that you're going to be in North America. Uh, with any luck, uh, I will catch up to you sometime in 2023 and we'll have a coffee and, and get better acquainted. So let's get better acquainted with your theory. Give me a very short overview of that theory and uh, how it how it works. Sure. Well, I mean, it's 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 kind of you to call it a theory. It, it it's probably a little bit. Um, it's just an observation of the way the change is happening in the energy sector, in the same way as it has happened in many other sectors and many other uh, uh, countries over time. And our, our our simple observation is that as new technology grows rapidly on uh, S curves, as you mentioned. It, it creates this peak plateau decline framework for the old technologies. That is to say, the old technology, first of all, uh, reaches a peak of demand. That is to say, it stops growing. Um, and we're kind of there for, for, for the energy system, we suggest as a whole. Um, and then it bounces along a plateau for a few years uh, because it does take time for uh, for, for the new stuff to, to move up an S-curve and get big enough to really start displacing um, enormous uh, systems. But but then eventually it gets big enough. And, and at that point, uh, you, you get a very clear um you you very clearly get decline for uh the 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 old old energy technology and that that in a nutshell is the the overall observation and we've been making you know writing a series of reports just demonstrating first of all how it, how and why it works and why it matters um and then running through how it's been playing out across the OECD and then across the electricity sector transportation sector and actually one sector and country after the next well, let, let's talk about the conventional framing briefly, because which is, I think, you know, Vaclav Smeal uh, is the personification of that particular view, which is that energy transitions take many, many decades, 50 to 75 years, uh, typically. And this one is going to take just as long. And my problem with that is that the technologies that are at the heart of the energy transition, we're talking wind and solar and lithium ion batteries and electric vehicles, they've been on the flat part of the S-curve, the very beginning of the S-curve for 20, 30, 40 years. It's, it's not like this energy transition sprang into being, uh, you know, in 2020 or 2010. It's been gestating for a long time. And I think I, I've, I've debated Smeal, uh, you know, fanboys about this, and they refuse to yield the point. But I think this is the fundamental weakness of, of Schmiel's worldview, is that the when you're on an S-curve, it goes really, really, really slow for two, three, four decades. And then it's very, you have a very disruptive decade. I call it the decade of disruption. Very original, as you can tell. <laughs> and, and. And then things, it goes really, really fast. 
And then it slows down as the technology, you know, becomes the dominant player in, in that particular marketplace. And that's essentially, that's the crux of how you see this playing out. Yeah, I mean, that's precisely it. But I mean, to come back to the, the this, this framing that energy transitions take decades, there is no dispute. I think it's really worthwhile saying this very, very clearly. Nobody disputes that it will take a long time to go from burning 14,000 million tonnes a year of fossil fuels to zero, right? But that's not the point. Um, the point is you get disruption at the very top of the system when you go from uh, growth to decline. And, and this is a kind of the difference between these, this, this ivory tower approach that is being taken by certain academics um, and, and the real world. You know, it's not like people in the car industry said, gee, there's a thousand million conventional cars out there in the world um, and, and there's only one million electric vehicles. Let's not bother with the electric vehicle. No, they were like, oh, crikey, the world's changing really quickly. We better retool our business because consumers want electric vehicles. And, and as a result, I mean, again, without rehearsing the facts too aggressively, you know, it's fairly obvious that in the last five years, almost the entire um, car industry has had to retool for the new reality, in spite of the fact that almost every car on the road is still the old kind of car. And that's exactly the point. It's the it's this moment of of of, of where you go from from growth to decline or from 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 uh, to, to the ending of growth. That's the key point for financial markets. Um, it's not and just to finish on this. It's not as if, you know, if, if you're an investor, you don't wait um, until if, if you if you're selling 100 widgets a year, you don't wait until you're selling 50 before you sell the share. Right. You know, you, you sell it. You try and sell at the very top. Um, or even slightly before the top. And that's, I guess, the difference between the, the academic approach and the financial market approach, um, which, which is that you know, we're focusing on turning points, not you know, some, some, some putative end date some decades into the future. You make a point in, your, uh, in the pieces that I've, I've the articles that I've, I've read, uh, where you describe this the theory, and I'm going to keep calling it a theory. Because I think it it I know you'll flesh it out over the coming years uh, with more analysis, but I, I think you've got the the makings of a theory here. Uh, tell me why you think this the very size of the fossil fuel system is actually a vulnerability. Um, so so it, it's a vulnerability because in the same way as, as the very size of the dinosaurs, I guess, was a vulnerability. The world changed. And because they were so enormous, they found it very hard to change with it. Um, and, and here we have you know, an analogous situation where you have these uh, companies which are absolutely tooled up with hundreds or tens of billions of dollars of, of assets in an old system, which is quite quickly um, being superseded by a a faster moving, slower, sorry, a faster moving local superior set of technologies. And they just don't have the skill set to survive in this new world. Well, that's very interesting because I, uh, as I think I've mentioned to you in, in previous interviews, I spent five years in the oil and gas industry from 2003 to 2008. And I got to see the, you know, I was kind of setting up, I was helping uh companies in Canada, uh, uh, I was helping set up distribution networks in the United States. And so it was essentially an exercise in new technology adoption, sort of the pointy end of it. 
And I, I sat across the desk from hundreds of oil and gas engineers from Midland, Texas, to Bakersfield, California, to Gillette, Wyoming, and all over, you know, in Canada and Calgary and so on. And here's something I learned. Oil and gas engineers, and I think this applies in other industries, are utterly amazing when it comes to innovating within their box. If you need to fix a problem at a, you know, a, a well that's failing for some reason on a regular basis, they will come up with a solution. They're excellent about it. No question about that. Where they fail, and this is why this is relevant to your theory, is they're really poor at innovating outside the box. That's not their area of expertise, and they don't do it well. And I think that's why, yeah, you know, you're talking about where that vulnerability comes from. It that and the size of their organizations and the conservative, risk-averse corporate culture and all of that together prevents them from from seeing the threat, the existential threat to their business, and pivoting to other business models that would enable them to transition to the new technologies and thrive going forward. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, this is, I, I mean, I guess, as we both know, what we are describing is something which is seen constantly in many other um, industries and in many other technology shifts. So, you know, just to toss out a few examples, the, you know, with the rise of the internet, you, you would have thought possibly that the, the old incumbents in, um, in, uh, in, in media or retail um, or or book selling would you know re retool themselves and pivot to this new world that was arising and of course they didn't and they the the, the great opportunities were seized by companies like like Google or Amazon um, which were able or, or Facebook which were able to uh, derive business models which were much more suitable for this new environment you know, similar story when you switch from the mainframe to the PC um, or you know the the overused example horse to car and all the rest of it you know. In, incumbents find it incredibly hard to shift um, to a, a, a new paradigm, you know, in large part because they've got all of their talent and skill focused on the old system and they're kind of fiddling around with the new stuff. And at, at the same time, people who are expert in the new technologies are devoting 100% of their attention to finding out the best ways to do it. And by the time the, the kind of the old industries figure out that actually this is the future, it's too late. And, and sorry, what I'm saying is absolutely axiomatic. You know, you see it in lots of academic textbooks, um, engines that move markets by NAN is one. Um, and 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 then you've got you know, the innovator's dilemma, Christensen, it's exactly what he talks about. So this is completely normal. The reason why the energy industry has been so slow to figure out what's going on is that they just haven't seen this. Um, you know, we basically had 100 years of well, 200 years of continuous growth of fossil fuels, 100 years of continuous growth of, of, of oil and gas. And you know, it's it's something new. It's really hard to understand. Yeah, I, I find that all the time. I'm constantly talking to uh, folks in the oil and gas industry and their frame of reference simply doesn't uh, isn't able to accommodate the fact that their products for the very first time have a competitor in electricity. Well, and if to I, less... yeah. Sorry, if, if I may just toss out a few, a couple of other stats, which I always find quite interesting um, you know, to look at energy history. Um, uh, not sure I could quite go toe to toe with Vaclav Smil on energy history, but I certainly have a very different interpretation of it. Um, and, and, you know, these technologies like um, uh, uh, 
uh, coal and and and, uh, and 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 then oil and then gas you know they were they transformed our world growing at about five percent a year you know this new stuff solar is still growing after 40 years it's still growing at 25 percent a year um you know th this is why again it's so hard for incumbents to realize what's going on because this speed of growth is absolutely unprecedented if the speed and the longevity of growth has never been seen before. And that's that's why they find it so hard to, 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 to reconcile. Let's talk about, I think this is a good place to segue into a discussion of the S-curve. And there are, you have three components, three parts of it. And as I do, when I do this kind of analysis, uh, either in my columns or, or for clients when I'm uh, contracted to write papers, uh, the first one is you call emergence. Uh, I call gestation, but yep. I think it's basically the same thing. You know, for instance, the, you know, the lithium ion battery is, gets developed in the 70s and 80s and it gets introduced in 1991. And then it takes, you know, now it's at the beginning of the S-curve uh, and it takes some time, you know, it revolutionizes personal uh, electronics, that sort of thing first until, you know, Tesla comes along and, and sticks it in a in a car. And, yeah, yeah. and, and you can, you know, there, wind, wind has an example, is an example, solar is an example, on and on and on. So this, but you, you point out in your article, the importance of innovation. And this is something that, again, the incumbents don't get is the pace and the scale and the depth of innovation that's going on in the new energy technologies. It's nothing short of astounding. And, you know, and the amount of capital that's now following into that, following that innovation, funding startups and funding the growth of, of companies that have, you know, passed their inflection point and they're growing and they're growing rapidly. I, I it, and it's partly rooted in the difference between the old and the fossil fuels and the new energy. The fossil fuels are a commodity. They behave very differently than the new technologies well, with the new energy, which is the technology. And I interviewed Mike Andrade, who's been in this business for 30 or 35 years. And he points to the fact that once you're, once energy is a technology, then it behaves, it has different laws like rights law that govern how fast it will, it will grow. And that's an absolute game changer. Yeah, well, as we both know, the, the the great expert on on this whole debate has been um, uh, Don Farmer and his team at the University of Oxford, and they've analysed in enormous depth um, a series of different technologies over the years, and to to what degree they were able to get onto um, learning curves, uh, rights law, um, and and uh, one of their conclusions was. Well, the number of conclusions. One of the conclusions was that it's quite unusual to get onto uh, a, a learning curve. It's quite unusual to for, for your cost to continuously fall over time as as you uh, expand your production. But once you do, then that learning curve tends to continue, um, which is, I guess, their second uh, conclusion. And and then they say, well, you know, let's just think through the the logic of this, assuming the growth continues, um, which, which again is is highly likely because of the feedback loops between growth and cost. Um, then how low will prices go? And you know, they then come up with these very, very low prices, um, $10 solar, $1 um, hydrogen, um, uh, $50 um, batteries and all the rest of it, you know, by 
by the by the 2030s and that then in and of itself is cheap enough to radically reshift to change the world but yeah i think um that type of observation is uh, very important i think and then in contrast as you say you know for something like fossil fuels which are uh, a um a commodity not a technology they just don't get onto these learning curves because even though there are learning curves within the industry you know we get better and better ex at extracting stuff and further and further offshore that's constantly being offset by um natural decline rates and the fact that we got to get we go and get the cheapest stuff first and therefore um from their analysis what it's worth fossil fuels basically are flat the cost of fossil fuels is basically flat over, flat over a century um and you know it's almost impossible it is impossible for a technology not on a learning curve for to compete with the technology on a learning curve and i kind of think this is this is a conversation market that you and i are having in 2022 in a decade we won't nobody will be having this conversation anymore it'll be, be looking back and be saying how obvious it all was and you know how could we possibly not have seen this um uh, coming well i would say that it's obvious now to those who well, are paying attention to us but not necessarily obvious to everyone yeah yeah agreed uh, before we leave the uh, the first stage on the S-curve, I, I want to talk about a different type of innovation, and that's business model innovation. Because in some cases, uh, it's not just about the, the technology, it's how that gets applied. And so, you know, Tony Siba's early work on uh, transportation as a system where, you know, everybody, nobody owns a car because everybody's taking an electric robo-taxi everywhere they go because it's four to 10 times cheaper per kilometer traveled. Or I'm seeing now innovations in things like uh, heavy duty or medium duty trucks as a service, you know, where yeah. if you're a fleet manager for a, a logistics company, you know, and you want to go electric, you hire, you contract with one of these companies and they provide you a turnkey operation. They provide you the chargers and the infrastructure to support it. They provide you the trucks. They even provide in some cases, the drivers. And, yeah. and the cost per kilometer or per mile uh, for our American uh, listeners and viewers is, is either competitive or already lower than the, the diesel or gasoline uh, competitors. And it's that kind of innovation all up and down the supply chain, all up and down the value chain that is, I think, in the end, uh, will just spell the death of fossil fuels quicker than we expected. Yeah, look, it's very well made. I mean, the the point very well made. There, there is, for example, just two weeks ago, I saw um, a, a a European leasing company saying that now um, the uh, the lease cost for electric cars in every single um, area of demand, from small cars all the way through to large cars, um, is now lower than than that of, of conventional vehicles. But you know, they're kind of they're bridging this gap and. You know, ultimately, it's these business model innovations are just very, very clever ways to, 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 to bridge some of the, um, the, 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 the capital cost gaps which still exist. Um, but yeah, I think I think we've seen some. We'll see a lot more. I mean, what will be really interesting now is as, as they start to expand into the heat industry and the industrial sector, where you know you're facing more um, recalcitrant uh, uh, opposition. You know business models could be extremely helpful in those areas. Exactly right. And your point uh, about moving from the emergence or gestation stage into the mass stage, which is the second one on the S curve, I call it the uh, the disruptive stage. 
uh, is that once a technology's market share gets to 10%, I think actually you, you make the point that it's between five and 10% is the inflection point. And if you think of it as a, we talk about hockey stick growth. So if you think about that inflection point, it's the heel of the, the blade on the hockey stick. And once it passes the heel, then it's on the shaft of the hockey stick going up at a very, very rapid rate. And we are between five and 10% and higher on all of, almost all of, I wasn't gonna say all, it's a kind of a blanket statement, but maybe we can say all of the key technologies for this energy transition. Well, actually we are. And I, I really want to make a point here, which I have to admit, you know, I, in the early years, looking at this issue, have been a little bit lax about, and I see a lot of analysis is not looking at this. You've got to distinguish between flows and stocks um, when you're looking at uh, change taking place on, on an S-curve. And um, so that is to say, uh, the, the 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 sale of cars, if, if 80 million cars a year sold, that's the flow. And then the stock is the, the stock of a thousand million cars. The point to me is that if you're looking for... Um, evidence of change you only have to look at the flow forget about the stock the stock inevitably once you get to 100 of the flow being new technology you know the stock will follow in in between you know, x years later x being between let's say 10 and 30 years so all we have to look at um analytically is what's happening to the stocks um and what's then really interesting is that when you look at the world in those terms solar and wind are much further advanced than people realize that 90 percent of new capacity globally now is solar and wind um and and it it, it 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 we're basically already there actually in the electricity sector and in the in the transportation sectors you know it's on a global level we're going to hit like in 2023 around 20 percent um but again for, forget about all these arguments about is how long it takes for the for the stock to change as soon as the flow has shifted the stock is it is a kind of question of, of of inevitability um and and you know the similar story is happening in heat pumps where it's now approaching 20% of sales. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's really extraordinary when you start to look at, at the flows of these technologies, how quickly they have they pierced through these, these inflection points. Well, let's talk about wind and solar for a moment, because uh, one of the reasons why they're beginning to, uh, you know, they're going to take 90% of new generating capacity in the coming years is because there's been a lot of innovation in other areas that enable them to dominate or to take a bigger percentage of, of the grid over time. And I'm thinking of things like uh, market design. You know, if yeah. you have, like you look at the United States where there's a lot of trading in between, uh, you know, regions, uh, market design had a lot to do with the penetration of, of wind and solar. You also have storage innovation. So just a few, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Salient Energy, which uh, is a good example of, you know, they're coming out with the zinc ion battery for stor stationary storage. It's 30% cheaper than lithium ion and it doesn't explode. It's completely, it's completely safe. And it can, you know, you can work at the utility scale or at residential scale. And then, then you've got other things like, you know, compressed air storage. There's so much innovation going on to that, to, uh, smooth the way for the integration of a higher and higher percentage of renewables and intermittent renewables, that 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 innovation is only just getting started. So never yeah, mind the cost. It's that other innovation that becomes the enabler of the key energy technology. 
and, and this is true, but it's also has been true in other major technology shifts. I mean, Carlotta Perez, for example, talks about um, six major uh, te technology shifts. And one of her very cogent observations is that uh, you often get two or three um, uh, innovations in two or three uh, separate but linked areas, which enable the whole to happen in you know, steel and railways, for example. Um, and and um, in, in the case of storage, it really has been astonishing. I and mean, as I think, you know, both of us would acknowledge a couple of years ago, it wasn't really that big a deal. People weren't talking about it that much. Now, um, you know, if I take the BNF numbers, you know, they've upped their storage forecast by 40% this year. We're now talking about 2030 levels of um, lithium-ion battery storage, 10 times higher of new de new deployment than it is uh, this year. So kind of storage is also moving very quickly, quickly up its ESCO. And as, as an aside, since you mentioned intermittency, um, it, it's very interesting, the latest IEA piece, which is talking about the various different impediments to change, you know, they talk about um, you know, permitting grids and um, in the global south and capital, the rest of it. They never talk about intermittency. Because actually, it's really, folks, not the um, barrier to change that everyone wants you to think it is. It's absolutely a soluble problem, you know, and batteries is one of the many ways you can solve it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I interviewed uh, uh, the CEO of a power association in the American Midwest. They had, it was a collection of 42 rural co-ops. And they are at 35% renewables today. They'll be at 70% by 2030, and they'll be at 100% sometime during the 2030s. And it's over time, everyone is figuring out how to do this. And the technology gets better, which then makes it easier to do it. And it, the, the uh, I can understand why there's a lag between what's happening on the ground and the public understanding of this, because some of these old narratives, as you know, you and I have written a lot about energy narrative, and they they take root, and they're really really hard to to uproot, to to modify. Not, and yeah, this is and, our job, and, I guess. Well, it it, it is in in part it is uh, is to develop. I mean, there are new narratives, uh, and we, we're talking about a number of them, uh, and I think over time, and not in the in a, you know, in the next three to five years, a lot of those narratives are going to be exploded and we're going to see a much greater public acceptance of things like wind and solar. I mean, I'm talking about North America now, uh, where they're just really catching hold. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, California and, and so on. But anyway, on well, to the actually, next. I, um, I, I'd like to try, if I may, for the first time, a um, an analogy, because you know, we, we play a lot with analogies, I guess. Um, but this idea that you need um, constant availability of, of, of wind and solar and without it, they're, you know, they're, they're invalid. Um, it's a little bit like having a salary, right? You, know, you have a salary and um, and then somebody says, come along, basically somebody comes to you and says, you know, would you like to do some work in your spare time? And you'll earn some money doing that. And you do that. And then, you know, you do a bit more and, and essentially you have, you get it more and more work from more and more money from the work you're doing in your spare time. And and you know that just means you can actually reduce working five days a week to four to three on your conventional job, and it's, it's exactly the same story here. Um, and and you know nobody says, well, you 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 can't possibly do that. You can't. You've got to turn this money down. It's the same thing for us. You know, we have all these new sources materializing solar and wind. Every time you put a solar panel up, it reduces the amount of gas you use. Um, doesn't matter. It doesn't work at night. It's completely irrelevant. It just uses you're using less gas, and it's that which is causing the disruption. Anyway, sorry, but yeah, it, it's this kind of 
um, th this kind of uh, narrative, I think, that we're seeking to challenge. And, but ultimately, actually, it people who fail to recognize that the world is changing actually damage their own cause. That's, I think, the other point that, that, that we want to make in, in, in broad terms. You know, we can have this fight, as it were, with fossil fuel incumbents. When ne they're never going to necessarily um, come around to it. But when they start to recognize that actually it's happening for real anyway, um, and that it's damaging them by not recognizing uh, reality as it were, that, that's the moment I think they, they start to change. Anyway, sorry, I slightly digress, but yeah. Well, I, I can add a little bit of uh, to that uh, argument because I see it in the Alberta oil sands, which is Canada's largest source of uh, crude oil. And they have the potential for a pivot here into producing feedstock, basically their bitumen, for materials production, particularly carbon fiber to begin with, and then asphalt binder and activated carbon and potentially others as the processes are, are developed. And they see that right now as a, just a little sideline. They're modeling for out to way past 2050 to be competitive in a even a 25 million barrel a day uh, global oil market. That's there's there's a problem right there it is that they they can't see the existential threat to their industry and that if they were prudent they would begin that transfer that transition be talking about it now planning for it now so that when the transition accelerates and we hit a you know peak the peak for crude oil say around 2030 and then we get on to the peak or the decline curves and we'll talk about those in a minute then they've got another option. They've got a plan B that actually could put, create, generate more value for them. So since I've introduced the idea of your, of your peaks, why don't you tell us how that works? Well, again, it's all very, very simple math. Um, you know, as, as the new grows, the old stuff inevitably stops growing. And then as the new grow, grows even bigger, then the old stuff starts to decline. I mean, to put some numbers around that, if global energy demand in, in broad numbers is 600 exajoules growing at 1% a year, that's about six exajoules. Um, and in the past, that was all fossil fuel. Fossil fuels provided all of that growth. Um, and, and now solar wind, if you count them at least the way that BP does, they, um, they themselves are growing by around six exajoules a year. Um, so they have become large enough to take all of uh, the growth. Therefore, there is no growth left for the fossil fuel system, which means that by definition, um, demand has has peaked. I mean, that's the kind of that's the very broad picture framing. But what's really interesting then is, and we did a little piece of analysis, is um, well, too strong to call it analysis, just an observation that you know over the last ten years to to get to this happy moment where renewables are big enough to take all of the growth. Um, you know, it's been quite painful and difficult. You know, electric vehicles have gone from zero to 17 million. Um, and that's been very hard and, and, and required huge amounts of innovation and, and, and so on and so forth. But actually, over the next decade, as they move up the S-curve, um, it's going to be considerably easier to get much greater amounts of growth. So, you know, there is a debate at the moment if EV, uh, uh, total number of EV in 2030 is going to be 250 or 300 million. I don't know, but it's going to be an awful lot more than 17. And that's the point, um, which is you get a massive surge of growth. And 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 therefore, if already today in 2022, we're already talking about renewables basically taking all of the growth in, in you know, as you go on up 
up the decade, it becomes even more obvious every single year that there's simply no room left for, for fossil fuel technologies to grow. Okay, so let's say they hit the peak. Then they then there's a plateau. What happens during the plateau? So I, I guess, I mean, coal is a classic example. You know, it hits its peak in 2013, and it's plateaued basically now for about a decade. Um, so so you in, in financial market terms, you get two D ratings, um, I would suggest. You get a first D rating when you go from, from growth to a plateau. Um, in it, and, and we've already kind of seen that in, in various different areas of the fossil fuel system. But then I would suggest you get a second derating when you go from the end of the plateau to decline. Um, and, and, and when people actually work out that as it simply will no longer be required. And, and we haven't yet seen that second um, that second derating. But yeah, there's kind of two, in financial market terms of two deratings. Then you get you know, during this long plateau, you get this kind of battle between incumbents who say, well, it's just you know, a temporary phenomenon and don't worry and growth is going to come back and it's all going to be fine. Um, versus the, the the challenging technologies kind of salivating at the great prospect of all the growth they can take, um, uh, uh, sorry, all of the market share that they can take um, and then continue to grow very rapidly. So you do, you know, you are going to get a, a, a plateau for a number of years, um, simply again, because of the mass of the thing. Okay, now there are two peaks that you described, the Matterhorn and the Fuji. Um, could you explain those, please? Well, sorry for, for the slightly cute um, framings, um, but but the Matterhorn peak is a very spiky peak. You basically go up and then you go down, and um, you know something like car sales would be a classic Matterhorn peak. You know, it peaks at eighty million units in twenty seventeen, um, uh, and and you know now uh, it's it, it it's down. To, it's, actually, I haven't got the numbers on my fingertips, but let's just say it's. Assume it's 70 and then approaching clearly 60s in sight as uh, electric vehicles start uh, growing. So you know, that's a classic Matterhorn peak. But oil demand for cars, because you still have the 1,000 million cars, that's going to kind of plateau for a few years because you still have new cars coming into the system, You know, more or less outweighed by um, old ICE cars coming out of the system. But it takes a while for the fleet itself to change. Um, and, and that's why you get a... a uh, a Mount Fuji-like uh, plateau. That is to say, it's kind of a flat top um, with, with, with various different bumps in it. And of course, I actually, uh, a few people have pointed out to me that Fuji has got a big hole in the middle because of course it's an old volcano, but but nevertheless, it's, um, <laughs> which is, you're possibly getting too cute with the um, analogies here. But anyway, the point to me is that it is a, a, a bouncy, bumpy top um, where uh, until the the stock of the new challenging technology gets big enough um to to to, to mean that you decline um but but you know ultimately the, the point i guess about a mount fuji plateau is that when you do get to the end of it your decline is just as precipitous as it will be on on a, on a matterhorn decline because at that point your uh your challenging technology is considerably larger so i mean if i if i if I uh, make the observation after the coal sector, the coal sector reaches its peak around 2013. It's been bouncing along on a plateau for a while. Um, and, you know, this year, the IEA says it's going to be basically the same as it was in 2013 um, because, of course, of, of, of gas to coal switching. But in the meantime, solar and wind is now 12% um, of the electricity system, still growing at 20% a year. Um, you know, 
back in 2013, it was it was let's say four um, percent of the electricity system. Now it's considerably larger, considerably more capacity to do damage. Um, so I would suggest now that the coal sector, for what it's worth, is reaching the end of its plateau. And there are a number. Uh, while the the old technology, the old com the old energy uh, commodity, is bumping along on the plateau. I mean, there are a number of reasons for that, other than just things like, uh, you know, the stock of the new technology hasn't reached a critical level yet. I mean, the incumbents begin to push back. Governments uh, sometimes, and I see this in Canada all the time, you know, the government, uh, both the federal government and particularly the Alberta government, have become so accustomed to the royalties and the taxes provided by the oil and gas industry that they're rushing to subsidize decarbonization. I mean, the the oil sands industry has asked for $50 billion to help pay for its uh, decarbonization by 20 by 2050. And and then there, you know, sometimes the the incumbent is able to make its product better, it increase its efficiency or lower its costs. I mean, I keep hearing from the oil and gas types that, oh, no, it's, you know, it's going to be a bumpy transition. Well, duh, transitions are not smooth. If you go back, if you look at the, the, the 1920s and, you know, the horses to cars and tractors and, and trucks, that was not smooth. These are, you don't change something as humongous as the global energy system smoothly. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have shocks. We have the COVID-19 pandemic started in 2020. We have the Russia's invasion of Ukraine that were huge shocks to the system and raised energy security concerns and so and price concerns. So can you tell us, talk, explain a little bit about incumbents pushing back and the role of shocks in speeding up the, the energy transition? Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the way we framed it is that for, for the energy transition technologies of solar and wind batteries and um, electric vehicles and, and, and heat pumps and so on, the the technology uh, issues were basically solved 10 or 20 years ago. The, the economics issues have been solved within the last five to 10 years. And now the only thing um, maintaining the incumbent system is kind of inertia and um, uh, uh, strangely enough, as you mentioned, political support, particularly in petrostates. Um uh, so, so that so far so good is absolutely um, normal, and and you know you can you can maintain a system for a while. Um, one of the problems, though, as an observation, is that ninety percent of people, so only ten percent of people live in petrostates, um, and and all of the growth in energy demand, for what it's worth, um, is basically coming from India and China and. Um, uh, the 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 uh, uh, other emerging markets, most of which have very little fossil fuels, and therefore inevitably, you know, they will be embracing these new technologies. And therefore, if you're a a, a major fossil fuel exporter, you just there's nothing you can do about that. You know, if you're if you're if your demand's no longer there, then there's you know you 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 can't force them to to burn stuff. Um, so that's that's I guess how the, the the role of the incumbents and the kind of limited capacity of the incumbents to 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 withhold. Uh, to stop change ultimately. Um, then when it comes to shocks, well, the classic observation is that shocks bring forward change, you know, in this as in any other area. And you know, COVID, um, at, during both COVID and uh, Putin's war, you've seen a massive um, hit to fossil fuel demand, but actually solar and wind specifically have carried on growing. So that therefore brought the peak 
demand that we're talking about forward by several years. Um, what about the uh, the? I guess what I'm I'm getting at here is uh, when are we going to see the technologies get up on the S curve to the point where where the decline is very is is really quite significant. And I remember interviewing somebody, uh, an economist from Wood Mackenzie, five six years ago, and he, he was saying because they have oil and gas clients, all of their oil and gas clients are very interested in the decline curve. Will it have a big shoulder? Will it have a, you know, will it be rapid, small shoulder and it'll be rapid decline? Is the 2030s, is that the decade when we're really going to see this play out and and heading into the 2040s where both coal, oil, and natural gas will all be clearly in terminal decline? So, Malcolm, I mean, you, you call this earlier. This is the decade of disruption. Um, if you haven't pivoted by the end of this decade, it will be too late. I think that much is, is absolutely clear. Um, we are today, um, if I take the BNF forecasts in 2022, we'll, we will install 270 gigawatts of solar um, and about 110 gigawatts of wind. That's enough to produce uh, uh about 700, six or 700 terawatt hours of, of electricity, which is all the world's electricity demand growth. By the end of this decade, we'll be, it'll be two or three times as much. Um, and, and, and that point, it becomes completely obvious uh, that uh, the, the old system is, is in decline. And I think what we can do now, again, coming back to my Mount Fuji observation and the coal industry, if, if, the, if we're right in saying that the coal industry is the end of its Fuji plateau, um, and, and the oil industry arguably reached the start of its Fuji plateau in 2019, you know, by the end of this decade, it also got to the end of its plateau. It, 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 it doesn't, you know, financial markets uh, will, will observe and see how this is happening in one uh, technology in one country after the next. And, you know, it won't be hard to persuade uh, financial market actors that the future lies in inevitable decline for, for gas as well by that stage. Let's, let's game this out a little bit. So if we're looking at the next, uh, you know, three decades, it looks like to me that coal is already plateauing, as you made the point, and, and uh, decline is, is coming fairly, uh, fairly quickly. Uh, oil is projected to peak in 2030. And... Or, or earlier, actually, from, from our framing, but anyway, yeah. Okay, fair, fair enough. I was thinking of Bloomberg NEF. Uh, I just interviewed uh, David Doherty, their head of, of oil analysis, a couple of months ago, and he thinks 2030. And it is, so we're all, most everybody's clustered around a little bit before 2030, a little bit after. And and then the question, Bloomberg actually was surprisingly uh, made the point, or they argued that the decline in oil consumption will not be as rapid as everyone thinks. I think they're they're going to go down to for road transportation to like 36 million barrels a day by by 2040 because aviation uh, demand from aviation and uh, petrochemicals will keep rising and there's also the argument that the developing world uh will continue to grow and their energy consumption will grow and that'll uh, that'll make up for some of the decline in the in the wealthier countries and then natural gas seems to be the fossil fuel that will 
perhaps have the the longest life and uh, and be part of the energy transition. Uh, you know, we hear the arguments around it being a bridge fuel, a transition fuel. Is is that a reasonable take? Coal now, oil in a decade, natural gas in a couple or three decades. Well, not really. I think it's considerably faster than that. Um, so you know, if if if, if I'm t- the way we would say, if we take this framing, you know, oil peaks twenty. 20- 13 plateaus till 2022. Uh, um, I, I think oil peaks 2019 plateaus till the middle of this decade, and then it's in it's in clear decline. And um, the you know we we we've heard all very very frequently um, these observations about you know rising demand for aviation and pet camp, you know, which which will allegedly be sufficient to um, withstand falling demand in um, in, in uh, trucks and cars and um, other areas of oil demand, but. You know, that is to argue from the assumption that nothing changes and there's no innovation taking place in the aviation sector. There's no innovation. um, There's no changes taking place uh, amongst policymakers to put more pressure upon these industries to uh, to change. And I think that's unreasonable um, because we are seeing policy uh, innovation. We are seeing sorry policy changes. We are seeing technology change. innovation so to kind of have a business as usual assumption for a couple of parts of 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 oil demand whilst the rest of it is being forced to change is seems to me um unrealistic and then this idea that the um you know you've got natural demand growth coming through in the uh emerging markets also actually a very false framing because um you know the biggest area of demand is china china is the leading the shift towards electric vehicles you know they've gone from four percent to 19 percent in the last couple of years of um uh, of of sales and you know actually uh, China's looking at 100% EV sales very very clearly by the end of this decade given their kind of their, their shift of up up the S curve. Um, so and, and India of course is is seeking to follow in the same footsteps Southeast Asia as well. So it, it's absolutely I think false framing to assume that the emerging markets will will follow the the kind of dying declining technologies um in, in, in developed markets that was kind of a, a good idea when the technologies were expensive now now it's the cost of fullness no longer valid and then finally about gas so, you know can gas survive for you know considerably longer i guess it kind of depends on price right i mean 40 percent of gas goes into electricity generation and and there as it, it, if you are indeed facing ten dollar solar wind by the end of this decade um and and really cheap batteries it, it it doesn't seem credible to me that um, gas demand would be able to continue to grow. I mean, I I, I recognise it's a much more finely balanced um, set of calculations uh, for, for for gas than for the other two. But but nevertheless, as these technologies uh, c- continue to grow and, and continue to undercut the, their their opponents on price, it just becomes um, much harder for for growth to materialise. Okay, you and I are in agreement that the energy transition is accelerating rapidly, and uh, the, the key technologies are moving are well past their inflection points. Other enabling technologies are either there or past, I and mean, some are, are approaching their inflection point. I've been making the observation lately that the energy transition has reached the point where it has kickstarted an economic transformation, a global economic transformation. I mean, we we need to build new industries to 
build these new technologies. We need wind plants, wind turbine plants and solar panel plants. And we need, you know, if we're going to build batteries, we don't just need critical minerals. We need the refining and processing of those minerals into metals. And then we have to take the metals and make them into com battery components and then turn those into battery packs. I mean, that that supply chain is not a small thing or an easy thing to to build. Nevertheless, we have to build it. And so we're seeing enormous sums of capital go into uh, that industry. So would you agree with the basic premise that the energy transition has already kicked off an economic transformation? And secondarily, uh, if that's true, then how much time do we have to, to make that pivot? Well, uh, um, to, to, to give you a few numbers from uh, the IEA publishes data on this issue once a year in the World Energy Investment uh, publication, um, the spending on um, fossil fuels basically has gone from $1,400 billion a year down to about 800 or 900. And in the same uh, period, spending on uh, clean technologies has gone from about uh, 800 to 1400 um, or 1300 I think. You know, So there's been a very, very clear capital allocation pivot from fossil to renewables. And it's quite funny, you talk to fossil folks, they, they keep on whining about how it's a lack of investment in fossils, which is causing this this energy shock. Well, not really. It's just a it's a reallocation to the new stuff, and what's caused the shock is Putin's um, war. But anyway, um, uh, look, um, this is indeed kicking off a massive uh, opportunity. And you talk to anyone, as you know, across the renewable energy supply chain, um, everything is tight. Uh, we have to indeed build the. The batteries and solar panels and for me what one of the really interesting developments this year has been the provisions um in the ara for um uh driving a a, a build-up of, of of basically the western um well the us and western um supply chain because we really allowed um or the west allowed china to steal a march here and to dominate all of these industries and now you know with with the invasion of ukraine and 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 there is a recognition this was not terribly smart um, politics and, and we do need to build our own supply chain. I think you and I and, and many others have been saying this for a while. Um, and, and now, therefore, it's great that that's happening. Um, and it's not just in the US and Europe's also seeking to to build and strengthen its own supply chain. Um, it's going to be an, it's going to be a very um, it, it's a winners take all environment at the moment. Everyone's trying to do it. Everyone's trying to seize the the growth opportunity. There are then kind of two debates. First of all, you know, can we do it? Can we build this stuff quick enough to to keep up with demand? Um, and and then you know the second debate is who, who, who's going to win. I don't really know who's going to win, but in terms of the <laughs> can we do it? Um, what's absolutely astonishing is if you look at stuff like um, uh, solar panels. This year we're building two hundred seventy gigawatts of solar panels. The industry in China is um, totaling up to build a thousand gigawatts uh, by the end of this decade you know a decade ago we were building um 30 uh you know it's it's the most extraordinary story the same thing with um battery factory remember when when elon musk gigafactory was the first gigafactory now there are like 250 of these things um so, so given the opportunity people will allocate capital at enormous scale into growth industries and that's what's happening it's going to be very stressful um, and there will be, you know, bottlenecks and, and problems to solve. But that's what money is very good at flowing to solve those bottlenecks. And at the current time, I've, I've uh, 
Bentley Allen from the Transition Accelerator makes this point. Uh, he's an expert on industrial strategy and policy that the these new supply chains are in flux today. They won't be in flux by 2030. They will have hardened because the capital will have been allocated, plant will have been built, uh, supply chains around those plants will will be coming into existence. And that what that means is there's no time to tarry. Any country like Canada, for example, that is is very reliant on oil. Oil and gas is far and away the biggest export from Canada. It's about $100 billion. The next is automobiles at about $65 billion. And so we rely on exports of oil and gas to pay for our lifestyle and to generate taxes and, revenue and, and uh, royalties that support our welfare state, support our social programs. And if we don't pivot and get into those new industries and create uh, new supply chains, then after 2030-ish, we will have lost out. Because Indeed, the old you will become you become like Britain at, at the end of the 19th century, which failed to reinvent itself for the technology shifts that were going on. Uh, yeah, it, it is absolutely no point being an ostrich and denying the the, the technology shift that's going on, and and particularly if if you're a major fossil fuel exporter. And I, you know, we we made this argument a few times to uh, to, to fossil fuel exporters. Actually, you guys should be at the vanguard of the change that's happening because um it's happening anyway you can't stop it and if you have to actually retool and, and reinvent your economies and actually it's interesting you see very different approaches here you know russia's kind of um has indeed stuck its head in the sand and is trying to produce more coal um last time i talked to the guys um but uh saudi arabia of course is has been allocating a lot of capital um to to, to companies like aqua to build solar um across the world and the noise is definitely thinking very very hard about how to maintain their lifestyle in a um in, in a new world so yeah it, it's got to be done well we've we've talked about what needs to be done uh we've talked a little bit about how it can be done and a little bit about when it needs to be done uh, Kingsmill, uh, I really I appreciate uh, your insights here. I enjoy our our conversations. We'll have you back in 2023 as you continue to work on your theory and flesh it out a little bit. And uh, and particularly, you've already written a piece on on changing energy narratives that I I will definitely uh, have you back to talk about that uh, in the coming year. So Merry Christmas to you and your family, and uh, all the best in the coming year. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas.